Bible. Please turn in your copy of the Scriptures to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, we'll be looking at the first two verses this evening. And I have decided uh, over the course of the various uh, months that I will be filling in and As I was saying, over the course of the few times that I'll be filling in, we will be uh, going through the book of Hebrews together, and uh, we will see where the Lord leads us in terms of how far we get. So we will begin this evening by looking at Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. This is God's holy and infallible word for you as people. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. This is God's Word. Grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. Let us pray. O great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come now to Your Word which You have revealed to us. We ask that by the power of Your Spirit we may receive it not as the Word of men, but as it indeed truly is, the very Word of God. So we ask that your spirit would be amongst us this evening as we hear your word. We pray that Jesus Christ would be exalted as the one who is the heir of all things, through whom you created the world. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen. In our world, there are two realities that penetrate Essentially, all of life. That is unity and diversity. If you look around in this room or you go outside, you see both of those realities at play in the people that you see. There is both unity and diversity. That is, there is a unifying principle that all people everywhere are made in God's image. And yet at the same time, with that unifying principle in play, we recognize also that there is diversity. People don't look the same way. Some have different skin tone. Others have more hair than others. Some have larger noses and others have smaller noses. That is the diversity that exists in a world wherein there is true unity. And that Unity and diversity actually finds its root in God Himself. We actually sang about that this evening. God is, as we profess, both one and three. One God. Unity. And yet, diversity in three persons. We see this actually all throughout 
the world in other ways, not only in people, but also in the things that God has made, other objects. Some of you may know that no two snowflakes are alike, that each snowflake that falls from the sky is different, and yet there is an underlying substance which we might call snowflakiness that exists in every snowflake. And so it is that we see unity and diversity in the things that God has made. We see it in God Himself, but tonight we see it in His words as well. As we look at the text, we see that there is a unifying principle that God speaks, and yet we see the diversity as well. And this isn't just the case broadly, but we actually see it in terms of how we understand the structure of the Scriptures. We think about the covenants that God has revealed throughout the Scriptures. There is this same reality of unity and diversity in the covenants. There is that what we call the covenant of grace, that unifying principle that governs all from Genesis 3.15 onward. And yet... As we affirm, there is a diversity that exists in that one grand covenant that God has revealed. For example, we have the covenant that God made with Abraham. And in view there, we see the the seed of Abraham and the land beginning to creep into view. And then as you move through that one unifying covenant of grace, you arrive then at the time of Moses and Israel. And in that covenant, the law itself is seen in a more uh, picture form. We see that much more clearly in terms of the Mosaic revelation than we do in, let's say, Abraham. And then you move to David and the kingdom becomes much clearer in view. And yet, the same basic unity exists in each of those stages. And so even in God's Revelation in God's speech and in how He deals with His people, there is this principle of unity and diversity. And so it is in our text this evening. And you see it at the first two verses in three different ways. We see it first in verse 1. 1 and 2 are going to contrast one another, and yet there's a basic unifying principle. First, it is long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke. And that reality is set against verse 2, but in these last days. Or secondly, we see that God spoke to our fathers, verse 1, as in contrast to us, verse 2. And then thirdly, we see that God spoke by the prophets, verse 1, And in contrast, diversity, we see in verse 2, He spoke to us by His Son. So both realities there. And yet, through it all, it is God who spoke. The same God who speaks. So first, long ago, at many times and in many ways, set over against these last days, this phrase, long ago, is not just referring to one, one short period of time, let's say, just the time of the prophets, but rather it would be best to understand this as the whole of our Old Testament Scriptures. Long ago, God spoke. And He did so over the course of what we say many times. He spoke many times and in many ways. 
You think about, again, the ages past in light of his statement that God spoke to our fathers. It's an age past, not just one small period of time, but not only long ago, but also many times he spoke. God didn't just speak one time, like many world religions claim, that their deity spoke to one person in the small crevice of this earth, and all of a sudden, a religion forms. No, God spoke long ago, and He spoke at many times. And also, He spoke in many ways. And this would be a fun exercise Maybe some trivia or something for you to think about over the dinner table tomorrow. Where, what are some ways that God has spoken throughout the Old Testament Scriptures? This morning we heard, in brief summary, about the Exodus narrative. And you have God speaking to Moses in the burning bush. Or you think about the prophets. And the prophets having visions and, and dreams or even direct uh, revelation given to them to write down in the case of Jeremiah. But also, kids, you may remember, in Numbers 22, God even uses a donkey to speak through. God revealed himself long ago at many times and at many, in many ways. But also we see in verse 1 the recipients of this revelation which was long ago. We see the recipients was that God spoke to our fathers, referring again back to those saints of the Old Testament. And that is set in contrast with us of the New Covenant age. And so we see the recipients as well. But not only that, we see thirdly also that God spoke by the prophets or by the instrumentality of the prophets. And that phrase is set over against God, re God revealing Himself by His Son. The prophets spoke on behalf of God, but Jesus as God speaks with the same authority as God Himself. The prophets are those who speak on behalf of God, but Christ speaks as God. And so the diversity is set up very clearly in the text. But not only the diversity, we see, likewise, the unity of God's revelation. Notice, it is God who spoke long ago. And it is God who speaks to us today, if we're putting ourselves as the us of the text. It's the same God. Contrary to what some, even in... Churches believe that there is some God of the old and a God of the new. No, there is this basic underlying principle for the author of Hebrews that it is the same God who speaks in the old and is the same God who speaks in the new. You see, if it was a different God, if God changed from old to new in revealing Himself, then why wouldn't He change again? We have no confidence that He wouldn't simply change again. If He already changed once, why would He not change again? But we see that it is the same God who speaks both in the old and in the new. I apologize for this. So we see the unity and the diversity. 
And so there's unity in the speaker, God himself. Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to start things all over again. So we've seen already diversity and unity in God's revelation to his people. There is a unity in the speaker. We've seen that. There's also unity in the message. And Jesus actually affirms this in John chapter 5. If you remember this, Jesus is dialoguing with the Jewish people. And he condemns them on the grounds that reading Moses, they were to know about Jesus. He says, if you read Moses, if you really read him for what he's saying, it's actually Moses who speaks about me and therefore condemns you in your unbelief. And therefore, according to Jesus, the scriptures have a unifying message while all the while containing this diversity in the ways God reveals. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So, old or new, the message is the same, and we'll come more on this later, but it is Christ who is the central reality of the scriptures. And so, unity in the speaker, unity in the message, but also unity in its authorship, in the author of Scripture. And for this, turn over uh, either page or two to Hebrews chapter 3, looking at verse 7. Not only is there unity in speaker and message, but also in the author of The Scriptures, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... Now he's quoting Psalm 95. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion or on the day of testing in the wilderness. So the author of Hebrews and the witness of the scriptural writers is that actually the author is not necessarily, first and foremost, the men men themselves, but it is the Holy Spirit. Spirit, verse 7. It is the Holy Spirit who says in Psalm 95. But he doesn't leave it there. Flip over then to chapter 4, verse 7. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying, through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, and here he goes. He quotes Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So while there is... Men speaking, as they were carried along, Peter says, by the Spirit, it is ultimately primarily God who is the author of our Scriptures. Speaking through, we may say, the secondary agents of men to communicate His Word to us. James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way. These people, the writers of Scripture, were not alike. Some were kings, others were statesmen, priests, prophets, a tax collector, a physician, a tent maker, 
fishermen. Yet together they produce a volume that is marvelous unity in its doctrine, historical viewpoints, ethics, and expectations. It is, in short, a single story of divine redemption begun in Israel, centered in Jesus Christ, and culminating at the end of history. Boyce continues, Behind the efforts of more than 40 human authors is the one perfect, sovereign, and guiding mind of God. And so there is a unity in speaker, a unity in the message, and also a unity in the author of the Scriptures. And so all diversity... As we come to Hebrews, as we come to the opening of it, all diversity must be set in the context of unity. The many speakers are ultimately one speaker. The many topics are ultimately about one topic. So we've seen the fact of God's speech. It is God who has spoken to the fathers and it is God who has spoken to to us, but there is also this reality in the text that there is a progress to God's speech. Look with me again at the text. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God's revelation progresses on as it moves from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. There is development to this one cohesive story. Gerhardus Voss uses this wonderful illustration to depict the progress of God's revelation in Scripture. He says that God's progressive revelation, this what he calls an organic process, he calls it from seed form to attainment of full growth. From seed form to full growth. Now, some of you who are into planting gardens and things of that nature know, know exactly what he's getting at here. At the beginning of the summer, you, you start with this small seed. You place it in the ground. And you water it. You nurture it. And you see that, that seed move from a seed to a sprout to full growth. And he's saying the same is true in terms of God's revealing Himself. In other words, He doesn't reveal Himself all at once in Genesis 1 and has nothing else to say. And actually, indeed, this morning, we heard this. That God revealed His his name to Moses that He had not revealed to past generations. There's a progress, a moving forward in terms of God's revelation from seed form to its full growth in Jesus Christ. From the acorn to the tree, there is progress, and yet you recognize that from seed to full growth, they're of the same substance. The seed that you plant and the growth that you receive are not two distinct things. They're actually related They're the same, and so it is with God's revelation. God reveals Himself in times past to our fathers. He reveals Himself in the present by His Son, and yet they partake of the same nature, just like that seed planted that now reaches 
full growth. So God has spoken. There is a fact that God has spoken. There is also the progress of God's speech. Thirdly, and most centrally, is the climax of God's speech. And we see this in two ways. We see this temporally, that is, with reference to time, there is a climax. But also in reference to content, there is a climax. In terms of time, it is God's revelation in these last days, verse 2, time. And in terms of content, it is God's revelation by His Son. Content. First, we see the time. It is God's revelation which climaxes in these last days. That's an important phrase we can't miss. Turn back with me to Acts chapter 2. And keep your finger in Hebrews. We'll be turning back there in just a moment. But Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 records the pouring out of the Spirit in Peter's Pentecost sermon. And in verse 16, Peter quotes the prophet Joel. Joel is predicting this day in the future when the Spirit of God will be poured out on all flesh. But notice the language that Peter, in quoting Joel, notice the language and its similarity to Hebrews. This is what Peter says in verse 16. But thus it was uttered through the prophet Joel, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Verse 21, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter, in quoting this Old Testament text, recognizes that he and his hearers are living in what the Old Testament understood to be the last days. That that is, God's final days of his revelation. We see this phrase in slightly different forms in other writers of the New Testament. John calls it the last hour in 1 John 2.18. Paul speaks about it as the end of the age. And in Hebrews chapter 9, the author uses um, the same language, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What does this language mean? Most basically, you have to understand that the New Testament writers understood themselves as living in those days. The last days, therefore, characterized life between Christ's first coming and His second coming. It is these days that are the last days. The end times have arrived with Christ. And it is these days that the author says God has spoken to us in. But he also, in terms of the content, the climax reaches, finds fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Verse 2, in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God's revelation 
throughout Scripture is not aimless. Rather, it is aimed at Jesus. It reveals Him in the Old, and it's also pointing to Him in the Old. He is mediated to those who believe in Him in the Old, and yet it is also forward-looking to Him from the vantage point of the Old. And the language here is actually striking. This phrase, by His Son, or, or in His Son, is actually written in such a way as to promote a contrast to the speaking to our fathers. God spoke to our fathers, but this language of in His Son actually lacks a definite article, the, and therefore signifying that this Son is unique. It's not as though God spoke to our fathers and then He simply spoke by His Son. But rather, there is this Sharp contrast. In other words, we can put it as one has put it. This is not simply God's latest word. This is God's last word. God does not have more to say after He has revealed Himself in Jesus Christ. Because, as our hymn says, what more could He say than to you He has said? He has revealed Himself. Jesus Christ, who verse 3 says, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Christ is the the final, the, the consummate revelation of God. He is the definitive and last Word of God. And this is actually seen in Jesus' words in the Gospels. You read through the Sermon on the Mount and you get to the end. And there's this strange phrase that could be very easily just read over. The people, the crowds are amazed because they say he speaks as one who has authority. In other words, he's not like those who came before him who simply say, thus saith the Lord, speaking on behalf of the Lord. He is the Lord speaking with authority. He is the final word and therefore speaks with authority Not simply speaking on behalf of God, but speaking as God. As the final climax of God's speech. Well, where do we go with this? What do we do with this material that the author of Hebrews has set before us in terms of God's revealing Himself to us? Well, I want to point out two things. question may come to your mind. If God has finally fully, consummately revealed Himself in the Son, have we missed out? The author of Hebrews, writing to a people who have not seen Jesus more than likely. They have not heard Him. They have not touched Him like the apostles. And the question for them is, did we miss out? Do we miss Jesus? The final, final revelation of God? But notice what He says in verse 2. He has spoken to us. God has spoken to us. How could God speak by the Son whom these people have never met and whom you have never met, and yet He can say God speaks to us by His Son? Well, it's in the words and it's through the witness of the apostles whom Christ 
has set forth for his church. We see actually this in chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Uh, This salvation was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. This salvation was, was revealed to us, those who did not meet the Lord, but it was revealed to us by those who heard, by the apostles. And we ourselves find ourselves in the exact same position as the, the us of the text. You have not seen Jesus. You have not heard Jesus. You have not felt Jesus like John says in First John. And yet... The reality that God has spoken to us. He has spoken to you in that Son through His Word. And Christ has set apart His apostles, as chapter 2 again says, as the the final interpretation of what Christ did. You see, throughout Scriptures, there's this play back and forth that God gives a Word, and then He interprets the Word for the people. Or God does a deed for the people, and then He interprets it by a word. You have God's uh, redemptive acts. Let's say the time of the Exodus, and then they come to Mount Sinai, and God tells them what He just did. And then you have the, the, the prophetic word, that Christ comes and He, and he, he acts out prophesying forward, and yet Christ comes as the interpretation of that prophetic word. And so Christ, as the final deed, redemptive deed, follows the apostolic interpretation of that deed. We have a final word in Jesus, we have a final deed in Jesus, and we have a final word in the apostles. So we, friends, are not those who have missed out. But we have God's very revelation here for us in His Word, and He still speaks. He still speaks the same. It's the same God who speaks to us, who spoke to our fathers. But secondly, not only is this truth seen here in chapter 1, a reality in which we don't miss out, but also we must come to this point in saying that there is nothing more for God to say. That may catch you as you first hear it. What do you mean God has nothing more to say? Well, that's precisely the point that the author is making. Yes, he still speaks, but his final word is in his Son. Again, as the hymn says, what more can he say than to you he has said? If Christ is indeed God God come in the flesh then He is the end of new revelation from God. And that's what we cited this evening, that the confession of faith picks up on. Those former ways of God's revealing Himself have now ceased. Discerning God's will is not a matter like Gideon, friends, of laying out a fleece. Discerning God's will is not telling God that the next person who walks through the door is the one whom I am going to marry. And it's not seeing the next license plate on the highway and saying that's the school and the college that I'm going to go to. God does not reveal Himself and He does not show Himself in those same ways. 
The secret, we may say, to knowing God's will is actually found in His final revealed Word. And Calvin beautifully summarizes this. He actually says, and and he pinpoints this, as he's writing primarily against the Roman Catholic Church, but he says, to go back and to want to revert to those old ways is to revert back to elementary it would, be like, it would be like a 12th grader who wants to go back to first grade because he likes snack time better. That's what, that's what we want to do if we say, I want those old, tangible ways of God's revelation. I want to discern His secret will by laying out a fleece like Gideon. Friends, no. Those ways have ceased because those ways were preparatory. As Calvin says, they were elementary. They were filled with, with, with imperfection. They were, not, they were not wrong, but they were less than the climax of God's revelation in His Son. To look then for God to reveal Himself in those modes is actually craving an inferior mode of revelation. Again, Voss says this, that God's revelation in Christ is not one new disclosure followed by others. As we said earlier, it's not God's latest word. He says, the consummate disclosure beyond which nothing is expected. It's the end. The final word. And it's the best word. And when you come to know Christ, what more could you want than Him and His Word. It is God's Word that is, as we profess, our only rule for faith and life. Yes, it's one thing for God's Word to be that which we we come to know Christ, but we profess that it's also our only sufficient rule for life as well. So friends, as we Think about our own lives. Where are you placing your hopes? Where are you placing those things that you long for to discern God's will? What is God's will for my life? Is found in the Scriptures alone. And as God works in our hearts by His Spirit, our minds begin to be molded into the, the, the fashion of, of Scripture so that when decisions arise and when life circumstances throw for a loop, we're not looking for new revelation. We're looking to what has God revealed that is in accordance with His will for our lives. And so the Spirit begins that work of illumination to open our minds, to clear out the gutter, and to open our minds to God's perfect and final Word for us. And so that is where we turn for faith and for life. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we thank You. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank You. And precious Holy Spirit, we thank You that You have chosen to reveal Yourself to us that You have preserved Your Word for us, that we may know Your will. O God, may our heart 
and our lives be filled with your word. As we seek to grow closer to you, O God, may we too likewise grow closer to our fellow brothers and sisters. So we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.